You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So last January 22nd, around January 22nd earlier this year, there might have been – you might have noticed straight people, straight people listening. You might have noticed that your marriages, your traditional marriages, your opposite sex marriages felt a little more secure, a little more protected, a little stronger. You were less likely late in January of this year to divorce your spouse or abandon your children because in Australia, a gay man and his husband were on their honeymoon and one of them died and it became a big problem because Australia doesn't recognize same-sex marriage and refused to issue a death certificate to the partner of the deceased man, to the grieving husband of the deceased man, listing him as the next of kin. So all the funeral arrangements were screwed up and put on hold and repatriating the body was a huge fucking nightmare for this guy, for Marco Bulmer Rizzi, whose husband, David Bulmer Rizzi, had died in an accident in Australia on their honeymoon. And this is what we're told needs to happen, that same-sex couples, our relationship shouldn't be recognized because that threatens traditional marriage and we need to protect traditional marriage from same-sex couples getting married to and somehow persecuting or refusing to recognize the relationships or marriages of same-sex couples makes straight people's marriages stronger and more everlasting somehow. I'm not sure how that magic works exactly, but we have it on papal authority and – and American Family Association Authority, that that is how it works. Shit on same-sex couples, attack people in same-sex relationships, undermine their – refuse to recognize their relationships and by some magic transitive power, opposite-sex relationships are healthier and stronger and those marriages are – your marriages are more secure. So this couple, same-sex couple, persecuted at the worst moment in their lives. As John Corvino says, the most important incidents of marriage, you know, we get into these arguments about cakes and banquet halls and florists, but really the most important incidents of marriage, legal incidents of marriage, tend to kick in at the worst moments of your life. Not the happiest day of your life, but really the worst day of your life. When your, for instance, husband dies on your honeymoon, the important incidents of marriage kick in. Anyway, it came out this week on BuzzFeed that it actually got worse for Marco after his husband's death, after he got out of Australia. Because after the cremation of his husband's remains in Australia, which had to be ordered by his husband's father because Australia refused to recognize Marco as David's next of kin, as his husband, Marco was flying home to the United Kingdom with his husband's ashes. And at the airport in Hong Kong, Officials seized his husband's ashes, took them from him. They saw them in an x-ray going through security and they took his husband's ashes away from him because Hong Kong, like Australia, does not recognize same-sex marriage. So look, just put yourself in Marco's shoes. You marry someone you've been with for a very long time. You go on a honeymoon. There's a tragic accident. Your husband dies. You are flying home with your husband's remains that you had to fight to – Take possession of, because Australia doesn't recognize your marriage, and then on your way home in an airport in yet another country where your relationship is not recognized, they take your husband's ashes from you because legally you are a stranger. Legally you have no right to possess 
these human remains, the remains of your spouse. And again, this moment really should have, if things work the way the Pope and everyone else says they work, this moment somehow through some magic transitive property should have made your straight marriages more secure, should have buttressed up all those heterosexual people should have heard the good news from Hong Kong that some fag was having his husband's remains stolen from him and just ran from divorce court. No reason to divorce now, honey. They're taking fag's husband's remains away from them. They're tormenting and torturing some poor gay man on his way home from Australia with his husband's remains in an airport in Hong Kong. So I suddenly don't want to leave you. Let's go work on our marriage. It's stronger now because that gay dude is sobbing in an airport in Hong Kong, fighting the airport security people for the remains of his husband. I was reading about what happened to Marco at the Hong Kong airport the same day uh, that the church released the Pope, the Pope church, the church with the Pope, that church, the Catholic church released a big new sort of teaching document on the family and the Catholic family. And in this big new teaching document on the Catholic family, the church, the Pope, Pope Francis, cool Pope, extended a welcome to divorced and remarried Catholics and extended a middle finger to gay people, gay relationships and gay Catholics. The same old middle finger in the same document where he, the Pope, urges priests and bishops all over the world to accept divorced and remarried Catholics into the fold and to not deny them communion. The Pope writes, as for proposals to place unions between homosexual persons on the same level as marriage, there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. And it is, of course, the Pope's right to think that shit about same-sex couples. It's his private little club with his private little hocus-pocus religion and his private, public, common interpretation of scripture and whatever. And you don't have to be a goddamn Catholic. It's no longer compulsory. Used to be compulsory in a lot of places, no longer compulsory. So what the Pope thinks is kind of irrelevant. And Marco and David were free to love each other despite what the Pope thinks. Unfortunately, one of the reasons same-sex marriage isn't recognized in Australia, in Hong Kong, in other places, is because of this religious bigotry. Because people with these beliefs promulgated by the Pope in his new document aren't content to let gay people do their thing and here in our private club we will do our thing. The Pope is in this document urging Catholics, priests, the hierarchy, the institution of the church to fight any recognition of same-sex unions. Not enough to say we don't recognize them. Not enough to say our interpretation of God says your marriage is bogus even if – legal, the Pope wants to fight the legality of same-sex marriage. The Pope wants what happened to Marco and David to continue happening to Marcos and Davids and Leslies and Junes all over the world. Later in this same document where the Pope takes a great big crap on same-sex couples, the Pope writes movingly, people are saying, and I agree, movingly, about love, about the experience of love, which is kind of hilarious considering the Pope is a lifelong celibate, but he kind of nails it. Longer lifespans now mean that close and exclusive relationships must last four, five, or even six decades. Consequently, the initial decision has to be frequently renewed. While one of the spouses may no longer experience an intense sexual desire for the other – weird place for the Pope to go, but there he went – 
he or she may still experience the pleasure of mutual belonging and the knowledge that neither of them is alone but has a partner with whom everything in life is shared. He or she is a companion on life's journey, one with whom to face life's difficulties and enjoy its pleasures. I read that and I don't see gender. The Pope writes that and sees gender and sees this journey, this life's journey, this companionship only being truly possible, only being legitimate when it's a vagina and a penis on a journey together. That two people with penises can't be on this journey together. That two people with vaginas can't be on this journey together. And the Pope, of course, is wrong. Marco and David were on that journey together. The journey that they were sharing together ended way too soon and way too tragically. And no one benefited from the torturing of Marco in the wake of his husband's death. No straight marriage was strengthened. No traditional bond was preserved in the torturing of Marco after the death of his husband, David. And remember that when you're reading stories about what the Pope came out and said this week about divorced and remarried Catholics and gay people and gay marriages. Because what the Pope is endorsing in his document isn't just love. The Pope is also endorsing torture for same-sex couples at the worst moments of their lives. Those moments when the most important incidents of marriage kick in, like the right not to have your partner's ashes pulled out of your hands in an airport at security. All right. That was sad. That was depressing. But coming up on today's show, tons of your questions, less sadness, less depression on today's show. Hey, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight girl, um, and I have been on OkCupid for quite some time now. And um, I've discovered in this online dating thing that um, I'm really into sexting. It's something that I really enjoy. I am very imaginative myself. I like to daydream a lot. I think that's like a huge part of why I like it so much. Um, And I love to do it with um, anonymous men that I do not know, um, which is what makes it so perfect on OkCupid. My question is, though, is that oftentimes when I do this, men obviously want to uh, act on this. um, And I sometimes necessarily don't want to act on it or meet up um, afterwards in any way. Um, And I'm wondering if there's a way to go about this in communication with the guys and make it clear to them that this is just something I like, something I like to enjoy. Maybe I masturbate while it happens without coming off as a prude or maybe um, a tease or anything like that. People go on OkCupid to meet people. OkCupid isn't a jack-off site. It's not a fantasy site. It's a site where people who wish to meet people in real life go to facilitate those kinds of in real life introductions and in real life sexual interactions. So you're allowing these people that you engage with to make assumptions about you that are reasonable, but not true. And then they are investing a lot of time, energy, dick pics, erotic imagination, erotic energy in you in the hopes that you will come through and you will show up and that there may be an in real life encounter, interaction or relationship that grows from this. And if all of those things are impossible, if none of that is ever going to happen because all you're in it for is the sexting, you are kind of being a jerk a little bit. You are being – well, maybe jerk's too strong a word. You are being that online 
person that people typically complain about who are frustrated about the people who lead them on online, the people who tease them. You are being what's commonly referred to as a fake or a flake. If you can be a fake or flake and sleep at night, then go for it. Hopefully, there are so many fakes and flakes online. Hopefully, half the people you're interacting with are also fakes and flakes who have no intent of meeting up in person. That's less likely on a site like OkCupid where people really do roll themselves out. They answer a bunch of questions. They write profiles. They put up multiple pictures. It's not grinder. It's not Tinder. It's not a low investment of time and energy and thought space. It is a space where people audition for in real life contacts. So maybe take your act elsewhere. Maybe take your act somewhere where people are making less of an investment and you can feel less badly about wasting their time or misleading them because you are kind of misleading the guys that you interact with at OkCupid. You can disclose early on that you're a real person, that you're really a woman. A lot of the fakes and flakes online who present themselves as females to get heterosexual malattention are in reality often gay dudes. You can give them proof that you're actually who you say you are or enough of it to convince them that they're not cranking up a dude and then make it clear to them that this is just a sexting thing, that sexting is your kink, that this is what you get off on. And if they enjoy dirty pictures from you, dirty messages from you, and they enjoy jacking off just as you enjoy masturbating as a result of all this mutual cranking up, then yeah, let's keep going. But you would need to make that disclosure if you want to sleep well at night early-ish in the interaction. You can continue to present yourself as perhaps available when you're not and sleep well at night if you disclose. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man in Texas. I'm married to a wonderful man who is very loving and supporting of me, but this call isn't about him. It's about my mom. I, when I came out to her, I knew that it was going to take a long time for her to accept it. It took a long time for me to come to terms with being gay, and I resisted and fought it for many years to include going through conversion therapy. Once I accepted it, accepted it, I met my wonderful husband, and life has been really good, and I've enjoyed the life that I've lived thus far. So I set a date for my family of three years for them to be able to mull it over, have their fights, have their arguments, and then come to accept it. Well, it's about six months past that deadline, and my mom is still resistant to it. In fact, she says regularly that God is punishing me for being gay. I had my final phone call with her just a few minutes ago. Basically, the terms of it were she's old and not going to change and doesn't want to change. And I'm gay and I'm married and I'm not going to divorce my husband to make her happy. I said that we are at an impasse and I don't know how to resolve it. And her response was, okay, bye. A part of me feels that some relief knowing that it's finally done with. But there's another part that really hurts because that's my mom. And I don't know what to do next. I've always had this in the back of my mind that it was probably going to end up this way. But now that it's come to pass, I don't know how to process it. If you have some 
words of advice or help for me, I'd really appreciate it. All right, joining me by phone to help answer this really heartbreaking question, Aaron Hartzler. He's the author of the new YA novel, What We Saw, which got a starred review from Kirkus, which called it a powerful tale of betrayal and a vital primer on rape culture. Also the author of the memoir, also a YA memoir, Rapture Practice, which was about navigating your relationship as an openly gay man with your really, really, really religious conservative uh, and not accepting parents. Aaron, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's my pleasure. So this poor guy gave his parents three years, gave being ex-gay the old college try, went into reparative therapy and just got off the phone with his mother. And my heart was just breaking as I listened to that call. And of course, it just threw me uh, back to your book, back to Rapture Practice and your experience with your own family. And I'm just wondering what your advice for him might be. Uh, yeah, it, my, I welled up when I listened to that call uh, because I know that moment so well. My first advice is make sure you're seeing a therapist right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you need to talk to somebody. Uh, my second piece of advice is to stand firm. And I know that sounds nuts, but I was wrong for a long time about quote unquote unconditional love. How do you mean? I walked around for 20 years saying, I'm going to unconditionally love these people into loving me back. Your parents. And yeah. And that's where you were when Rapture Practice came out. You wrote a really, I thought, moving piece for Salon about how as an openly gay man whose parents reject his sexuality, you managed to have a relationship with your parents. But there's been a change since then. Is that not right? There there has been a change. It was a change about a year and a half ago after 20 full-on years of dealing with this with my parents. Uh, My mom and I were at dinner in Los Angeles. She looks across the table at me and my then boyfriend at the time and had a minor meltdown about us being gay. And I thought to myself in that moment in that restaurant, if this were any other 60-year-old woman in the world, you would smile graciously, get up, get the check, and never speak to her again. But because it's your mom, you're going to take her to her hotel room first. And that's what I did. I drove her to the hotel and I said, Mom, you don't get to say those things anymore. They're hurtful. We've been doing this for 20 years. I came out to you when I was 19. In the intervening 20 years, the entire rest of the world just about has come around on a lot of these issues, and you haven't. And she was shouting Bible verses, and I just said, look, I'm out until you can figure this out. And for a year, I didn't speak to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a text, not a phone call, not an email. And I just decided I had tried everything else, twisting myself under pretzels for years over this. Mm -hmm. And they could get a, a shot at what it was like not to have me in their life. They became voracious about contacting me. And it it was really hard to stay strong for a year and not talk back. Um, I finally texted my dad back when the Royals won the World Series. I grew up in Kansas City. <laughs> We've been texting again now. Uh-huh. My mother is thrilled to, to speak with me at any moment, at any time, at any part of the day. She hasn't changed her theology, but she knows what not to say around me now. She knows not to shout Bible verses at you. Yeah, she knows not to shout Bible verses at me. She knows not to bring it up. Um she has had dinner now with my brother and his husband, um, who she had not met before, did not go to their wedding. So to this caller on the phone, I would say, <laughs> to this caller, I would say, uh, you're in an impossible situation perpetrated by your parents. Mm-hmm. You have done nothing wrong, and it is just fine for you to put some boundaries on how you are in contact with them. Right now, I would say leave it alone. If your mom wants to not have you in her life, why would you, what, what, what would it say about you to go on bloodying your shoulder against that closed door? 
why do you want to be in her life so badly when you know there's a world of projection there for you? And it's terrible. It's the worst. It's it's the worst situation uh, in the world for a son who loves their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I completely identify with that. I will say that by choosing a family of your own and being invested in that, those actions have made me uh, not only happier but so much more empathetic, and I am so much more helpful to other people who are going through the same situation. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, just I want to take a pause here. I'm just so sick of this shit. I'm so sick yeah. of people's faith uh, destroying mm-hmm. their relationships with their own children. I'm sick of the pain that this visits on young and not so young LGBT people when their families cling to those Bible verses with more passion and ferocity and attachment and love, it seems, and they cling to their own flesh and blood, that reconceiving yeah. God or, re, or, or reinterpreting or, or setting aside those Bible passages in the same way we set aside every goddamn thing the Bible has to say about slavery and menstruation and so much else. And talking snakes. Yeah, yeah and we, we, they set all that aside. Or people are capable yeah. of turning a blind eye to that because it makes – because they must – but they, some people are incapable of setting those things aside so that they can love their own children. It just, it's flabbergasting and the pain this causes. Yeah. Well, and they set aside the one, the, the one very specific instance where Jesus said it would be better for someone who offends one of these little ones that a millstone be tied around their neck and they'd be dropped into the middle of the sea. Millstones for his mother, I say. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds crazy and violent, but I, it's it, figuratively, if you're going to, you can't part and parcel the Bible that you're going to abuse your kids with. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is, I think we're all exhausted by this. Yeah. And especially those of us living with it are exhausted by it because it's one of those wounds that never fully heals. It, it's one of those wounds that never fully goes away. But you cut your mother off. You didn't speak to your family for a year. You stood strong and they, yep. if not they haven't come around. They're at no. least keeping their fucking mouths shut and no longer antagonizing yeah. you or attacking you when you do interact yeah. with them. So that's yeah. And you know what? Some fucking it, progress. They needed a reminder. Yeah, work in progress. Progress, not perfection, right? It, it undergirds something that I say constantly, which is your only leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. Yep, that is exactly correct. And you made yourself not present, and you leveraged better behavior out of them. Yeah, and your caller, his mother, may have been the one who huffed away from the phone. But yeah, give her six months. <laughs> oh my God, that's harsh. But it's true. It's true. And I, it's true. I, you know, look, you you want to be crazy because all the people who sit in the same room with you three times a week nod their heads at the same Bible verses. All right, but that doesn't mean I have to show up for it. I definitely don't have to lay down on the double yellow line of your your superhighway and let you run over me with your semi truck every week. You know, like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. But in the in, in you know this just happened to him. You've been going through this for a yeah. very long time. This just happened sure. to him. The pain of this moment. Besides, get a therapist, talk this out. What can he do practically at this moment? Self care. What self care can he engage in at this moment to to get through it? Well, I mean, I think I. I personally would read a, a wealth of literature that's out there on the subject. There are many, many books that have been written. I mean, if it's me, I'm going to run and eat well and go to the gym and find the delight in the friends that I have. Um, and I'm going to lean on those people for support. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had better answers. I don't because yeah. I know how excruciating this is. It's true. Sometimes people, people want an answer that makes the pain go away. And there are moments where you just yeah. have to say you have to walk with the pain. You have to walk through the pain. You have to feel the fuck out of your feelings and come out on the other side. There's no 
no avoiding them. No, and and no, no. I know this may sound empty and ring hollow to him right now, but you will be able to help so many other people younger coming up behind you if you can make it through this. Mm-hmm. As you have helped so many other people, Aaron, with your writing and with your books. Aaron Hartzler, check out his books, What We Saw, which has gotten tremendous reviews, YA novel, takes on rape culture, and his memoir, Rapture Practice, which I read in a day and absolutely loved. And as a kid uh, who's queer, or as somebody who once was a kid who was queer and is now still queer but not a kid, it really captured (laughs) uh, what it feels like to grow up gay uh, in a religious household and the the fallout from that. Um, Thank you, Aaron, for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old male from Canada. I just got out of a five-year relationship. She came to terms with the fact that she wasn't happy and uh, packed her things and left. The way I'm feeling right now is that I could go out on the rebound, and that is what my friends have been encouraging me to do. But I'm not really sure if that would be healthy. It's only been a week. I'm still feeling a lot of emotion towards the, the situation. At the same time, I feel like I could go out and try to get some sexing done. So I'm not sure what to do. Could you maybe touch on how long you think it would be healthy to wait before a rebound? You know, the thing about rebounding is sometimes you rebound and you score. And sometimes you rebound and you don't score. But when you're not on the rebound, sometimes you hook up with somebody and you score. I mean, something comes of it besides the it itself, the sex, which can be a good thing all by itself. But sometimes you hook up and you score and sometimes you hook up and you don't score. Just like with rebounding. Sounds like a week after a traumatic breakup may be too soon for you. That certainly the tone in your voice communicates that whatever your friends are encouraging you to do, you're not ready yet. But when you are ready in another week or two or a couple of months or a month, get out there. And don't dismiss the person that you're with first after the end of this relationship as a potential relationship quality person. And don't dismiss the person you're with first after this relationship ends as someone you could never be in a relationship with because they're a rebound relationship because you never know. I'm in a rebound relationship myself right now in the 21st year of this rebound relationship. It happens on the rebound. You can score on the rebound. But that's not really an answer to your question. That's only half the answer to the questions that you laid out. You wanted a time frame. You wanted me to say you should wait X amount of time before going out and hooking up with somebody or having that first one-night stand that could become a few night stands or a lifelong relationship. You want a number, a number of weeks, a number of months, and there really isn't a number that I can give you. The number is whatever number you choose, whatever works or doesn't work for you. And don't do that Hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thinking where the first time you go out and you hook up with somebody, if it doesn't go well, don't then say, oh, it was a mistake to go out. Oh, rebound sex never works. It could be just a coincidence that you went out and that thing, whatever it was, didn't work out. Just get out there when it feels right and listen to your friends because if they see you spinning down into some sort of grief hole about this relationship ending and your friends, the consensus is or the unanimous opinion of all of your friends happens to be that you are wallowing too much and you need to push yourself outside your discomfort zone or your grief zone and get out there, at a certain point, you need to listen to your friends. So I'm going to qualify when it feels ready with, even if it doesn't feel ready, 
totally ready, even if you don't feel completely secure that this is the right choice, if everyone in your life is looking at you and saying, it's time, you might want to defer to the wisdom of the crowd. Hi, Dan. I'm in the Atlanta airport, and I just met two gay men that are Republicans that fucking hate women and are okay with everything Donald Trump is doing. Fucking not okay with me. What is wrong with them? And they don't care about vaginas or people or life or anyone. It's so weird. I just didn't think gay men were that shitty. Man, or anyone for that matter. Fuck. Some of everybody, some certain percentage, and not a constant percentage, thank God, because people can get better. But some of everybody are assholes. And that includes gay men. Some gay men are shitty, shitty, fucking assholes. Some gay men are anti-choice. Some gay men can't see the connection between our right to control our own bodies and our own sexualities and the way we express them and women's rights to control their own. Some gay men can't see that homophobia is misogyny's shitty little brother and don't see the connection that the people who hate us for being gay hate us for being like women because they hate women, which is why women out there don't date homophobes because they hate you too, not just gay people. They hate gay people for being like women. What does that say about how they feel about you? Don't date homophobes, ladies, my advice. But don't go into interactions with gay men, and I say this as a gay man, expecting them to be better, less racist, less sexist, less anti-Semitic, less transphobic, less anything than the average person. You would hope that being on the receiving end of so much hatred and grief would sensitize people and make them more progressive, more likely to see those connections, more likely to support others who are different. And I do think that gay men are those things at higher numbers. Look at the gay vote and you will see a good indication that most gay people are progressive. That doesn't mean that all of those progressive-leaning, dem-voting gay people are 100% awesome on every issue or 100% educated on every issue, but they're moving in the right direction, which can make running across a right-wing Republican shitbag gay nut all that much more galling because you would think they would know better and you've run across fewer of gay people like that than you've run across straight people like that. So you kind of expect that from some of the straight people that you know or run across and you come to maybe not expect that so much from the gay people you run across because gay people are less likely to be that stupid and hateful by dint of their own personal experience. But the stupid, hateful ones are out there. The stupid, hateful ones and worse – Andrew Cunanan, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. There's some gay people out there who are serial killers. Some gay people suck. It's actually a real problem, this impression that gay people should be good or loving or kind or progressive or liberal or whatever. Because a lot of the people who believe that are gay themselves and young gay people coming out. They come out with this expectation that all the gay people that they meet are going to be their brothers. They're, you're gay and lesbian, brothers and sisters. And then they come out into the lesbian, gay, bi, trans community and they encounter shitty gay people. At some point, you're going to encounter shitty gay people. And if your expectations were in, falsely inflated, if you expected all the gay people you met everywhere to be rainbows and unicorns and liberals and pro-choice and voting for Bernie Sanders and or Hillary Clinton – if that was your expectation, your expectations are going to be dashed sooner or later when you encounter, as you did, caller, shitty, shitty gay people. They are out there. You don't have to look much further than my feed on Twitter to encounter some of them. 
Hi, Dan, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, I'm a 28-year-old straight female in a fairly complicated relationship with a man in an open marriage. Um, He's nearly 50. He has kids. His marriage has been open for the last 15 years, and he and I have been going out for just under a year now. Um, To complicate things further, it's also a long-distance relationship. I'm based on the West Coast, and he's on the East, so there's a lot of travel. Um, He's the first man that's ever called himself my boyfriend, and he's the first man I've ever loved. He's also a follower of the campsite rule. I've learned a lot about relationships and about myself since we got together, which is great. Um, My question is this. I have unfailing respect for his wife and his situation. Um, At the same time, I don't get to see him as often as I'd like to. When we do see one another, it's usually on his terms. And because of his situation and the distance issue, he dictates even implicitly when and in what ways we communicate with one another. Um, I'm falling deeper and deeper in love with him as time passes. Um, From my perspective, his marriage is an open one. So in theory, that means that I should have some rights as a legitimate third. Um, But I don't know how to ask him for more contact or to not shut me out without risking showing disrespect for his marriage and his children. I absolutely don't want to do that. Um, I'm not so stupid as to try and get in the way of what I understand completely is the most important thing to him. Um, But equally, I feel no sense of security in my relationship with him. Um, I like to think that I have a right to that after nearly a year of going out. Um, And is there a way for me to assert my needs as a girlfriend and my desire for more from him without seeming shrill? I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you've never met nor have you ever spoken with or interacted with online nor do you follow on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter this man's wife. My hunch is that your boyfriend's marriage is not open. Everything that he's doing to you, long-distance girlfriend, very limited contact, only he can initiate contact, no interactions with his family, with his wife, independent of him, all of that screams, I'm bullshitting you. All of that screams, I'm in an open relationship, but my wife doesn't know that we're in an open relationship. My my marriage is open because I opened it, but don't tell my wife. That's my hunch here. You can ask for more. You should ask for more. You should take him at his word that he is in an open marriage and everything's above board and there's honesty here and the wife knows about you and ask for more contact. Ask to be his girlfriend. Ask to have the right to give him a call every once in a while when you feel like it, that you should have the right to initiate contact yourself. And I bet what you'll find out when you – shrilly ask for these things. There's nothing shrill about asking this thing. And your call was the least shrill thing I've ever heard in my life. And what you're asking for is not that much, nor are you being particularly demanding. When you ask for these things, I bet that this relationship that you've been in for a year will end because suddenly you will be a threat, not to his marriage, but to the lie, the lie that he's told you that he's in an open marriage and the lie that he is telling his wife most likely, which is that he is monogamous. So good luck with that. Hey, Dan. I'm an early 30s man. Uh, I've been married for 15 years to a woman. When we got together, without really discussing it at all, we just sort of fell into a habit where what I come to think of as home naturism. Basically, we just don't like to wear any more clothes around the house than we have to when it's just us. We now have a boy and a girl who are aged nine and seven, And again, without really thinking about it, we have continued the habit with them. And, you know, both of us grew up in rural hippie households where there wasn't a lot of pressure from our moms to dress in any particular way. So my kids don't really have any shame around nudity. And instead, we have household rules about 
when clothes are required, and they follow those rules pretty well. And, yeah, of course, I have age-appropriate discussions with them about how to protect themselves from inappropriate behavior, behavior from others or directed at others. But the trouble is, as they get older, and they've been asking more and more frequently why anyone cares about nudity or even privacy. I usually explain that once people reach puberty, they usually start to have different kinds of feelings about what it means to be naked and what it means to see other people naked. This is pretty abstract, and my strong-willed little boy loves to test things like this. And uh, he's at the age where people will start to react very strongly to him crossing certain lines. I'd like to impart in him something deeper, especially as we rapidly approach the age where I need to explicitly talk with him about privacy around his own sexual development. There's no way I would ever go back in time and give my kids shame about their bodies to protect them from this stuff. But at the same time, I feel like there's something I'm missing. Can you help, Dan? I may not be the right advice columnist slash podcaster for your query, caller. Um, funny story. For years when I've talked about my parenting style, I have used this analogy. Everybody remembers the nudist parents as the traumatizing parents. And I don't mean actually unclothed parents, but I use like the nudist parent, meaning the kind of parent who's too open with their kids about sex. And I recognize that sex isn't nudity and nudity isn't sex. But all of us when we were growing up, when you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, there would be one friend in the group, or maybe you were that person in the group, whose parents were just a little too hip about sex and wanted to talk to their kids and their kids' friends about sex. And it was horrifying right up there with seeing your friend's parents naked. Or seeing your own parents naked. That's really what I mean by the nudist parent at that moment. And Terry and I have always said we are not the nudist parents. We don't talk with our son constantly about sex or pursue that as a topic generally or inquire with his friends about sex. And we kind of tiptoe around the subject. And we wear clothes. And we've already established on a past show that I'm not comfortable being naked myself. We had Mark Joseph Stern from Slate on to talk about a piece he wrote for Slate called, If You Are Not Comfortable Being Naked Around Other People, You Are Not an Adult. So I guess I am not an adult. But you are a caller. You are an adult. You are an unclothed, naked at home, home naturism adult. And your kids have questions that I can't answer because I was always a fully clothed at home parent adult. So I'm not sure what you tell your kid. Besides, most people wear clothes at home in front of their friends and family and kids. We didn't. We're nudists. We're a brutally oppressed sartorial minority. And that's about as much help as I can offer you. You asked me with, for my help imparting something deeper and I really got nothing deeper for you. But maybe, as we sometimes do, maybe somebody listening has something deeper to impart and we're going to kick this one out to the listeners as we sometimes do and invite them to call in with their thoughts. And we're specifically calling for other home naturists other nudists to call in with their thoughts about their children, not people to express shock or discomfort at the thought of nudism. That was my job. I am plenty shocked and plenty discomforted by the whole subject of other people being naked and myself being naked. So I covered the squick of it. So we are inviting callers to call in and cover the practicalities of it. Other members of this sartorial minority, 206-302-2064 are invited to call in and share your perspective and what you told your kids, what, deeper things you were able to impart to your kids that you raised in the nudist lifestyle about going out there into the world and encountering people in clothes. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener, 25-year-old girl. I have a question for you. I recently started working 
at a private condo giving back rubs and happy endings. I've always really enjoyed sex and attention. I like the power. I like to make money. And so far, I've only had really positive experience except for this one little negative one. And it happens to be not with a client, but with the owner of the condo. I confided in a friend about this work that I do, and I guess I really misjudged his comfortability level because he was appalled. He made me feel awful and judged. And the worst part is I had never felt bad about it until then, and he was the first person that I chose to share with outside of this line of work and outside of these experiences. So my question for you is, do I just need to continue to lie to people and not allow them to know that particular part of my life? Is it ever going to be more widely accepted? I am feeling judged for something that I love and enjoy, and I don't know that I can continue to lie to everybody in my life, but I don't want to share with people who will think that it's appalling what I choose to do. I wish you'd left a phone number because I would have called you back. I'd like to know, you say you're doing this in a condo, and then you talk about disclosing this to the condo owner. So I assume you're renting someone's unit in the condominium, and he was not so happy about your line of work and that you're doing this in his condo. And maybe his problem was just sex shame and whorephobia, and he objected for bullshitty reasons, sexphobic reasons about what you're doing. And I have no objections to what you're doing. But perhaps those were his objections, or perhaps he's worried as the condo owner about getting in trouble with the condo association, which probably has rules against business being conducted in the units, against clients traipsing through the building, and may, as many condo associations do, have rules against morally objectionable behaviors in buildings. And as we know, there's a lot of moral objection out there to sex work. Sometimes they include really broad and problematic and bullshitty clauses in condo association rule books so they can go after basically whoever they want to. And they may go after you if indeed you run around telling everybody, including your neighbors, what it is you're doing for a living, which you shouldn't be ashamed of, but you have to know there is a stigma. And in most places, what you're doing is illegal. So taking those two things into account, the stigma that I think is unfair and bullshit but exists, and the illegality, you may not want to run around telling everyone in your life about what you're doing and telling your landlord what you're doing because you could get in trouble. And it's really a catch-22. The stigma and the shame isn't going to decrease until more people who engage in sex work and more people who engage sex workers are open about it. And yet there are consequences right now because of the stigma and shame for sex workers and clients who are open about it. And as you've seen, you've just encountered that consequence. So I'm not sure what to tell someone in a situation like yours. Yes, you should be able to be open about it. No, there shouldn't be any shame. But right now there are consequences. And you as a rational adult have to be cognizant of those potential consequences. And being cognizant of them means you might not want to just be as open about this as you should be able to be in an ideal world because you are not jacking off men in this condo in an ideal world. You are jacking off men in this condo, which is not yours, in this world. And in this world, telling everyone you should be able to tell can get you in trouble and probably get you evicted and probably get your landlord, if indeed this dude owns the condo, into trouble. He could get fined. 
I'm glad you enjoy what you're doing. I'm glad you enjoy this work. I'm glad you find it empowering and not traumatizing. I'm sorry to say, though, that you might want to be more discreet for your own safety, for the safety of your clients who are coming into this building, and for the peace of mind of your landlord. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to chat with Peggy Ornstein. She's the New York Times bestselling author. Twice over, she wrote Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Waiting for Daisy. And she's the author of the new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape, which is on sale now. Hey, Peggy, thanks for jumping on the phone today. Oh, thanks for having me. Before we get to the new book, I wanted to ask you a quick question about Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which is about the Hmm. princessification of uh, girlhood, really, uh, how Disney Inc. has just colonized young girls' imaginations. But you and your family, you live in Berkeley. If a little girl isn't safe from Disneyfication in liberal, progressive, crunchy granola Berkeley, where is a little girl safe from Cinderella? You know, if uh, what happens in places where women actually shave their legs, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The the cool thing about um, that book is that in the years since I wrote it, I feel like when I first started, people were like, "What are, you know? What are you talking about? What's what's the big deal?" And now people are really starting to feel oppressed and angry about the little pink box that girls get pushed into. And I feel like there's been some movement both in alternative culture and also even in mainstream culture in trying to expand that box a little bit and trying to get beyond, to a degree, the idea that little girls, you know, how they look is more important than who they are. Do you think the fever broke? Are we moving out of the Disney no. princess stage? No. <laughs> you think it's as bad as it's ever been? I don't know. Disney is so interesting. They keep making the movies, you know, and as long as the movies keep making money. But it's really, you know, it actually isn't the movies so much. And I do think that they try to reflect the era that they're in. So now they sort of have a quasi-girl power bent to them. Um, but it's always really been the products that are more the issues. So a Tangled, that Rapunzel movie, had mm-hmm. sort of, a girl power theme to it, but then you go into the store and you get the escape from the tower lip and nail kit. You know, so there's sort of a bait and switch with it's, the product. It's sort of like African Americans running for the GOP nomination, which allows them to say, "Who, exactly. who us and racists?" Been... And this allows Disney <laughs> to say, "Who us sexists?" Look at the girl power right. message with the tiny exactly. little uh, wasp waisted, pointy nosed princess, and please buy the exactly. nail polish. Exactly. So it's it's a, yeah, whose eyes are bigger than her waist and apparently carries her uterus in her purse. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the new book. You are, Ew, okay. You argue, and I'm quoting here, that the culture has uh, essentially uh, committed the, the, the psychological equivalent of a clitorectomy on little girls. Mm. Can you unpack mm-hmm. that for us? What do you mean by that? Sure. So, um, I mean, I, I really talk a lot about the complete silence around ideas of female pleasure, and I talk about it as uh, an issue of intimate justice. It's a social justice issue. So when girls are little, when they're babies, we don't name, I mean, we don't even name the vulva, let alone the clitoris. Um, there's just this kind of like, here's your belly button and here's your knees. But yet we, uh, parents do tend to name males organs and then they go into um, their puberty education classes and you hear with boys about, you know, erections and ejaculation and girls get periods and unwanted pregnancy and that, you know, image of the looks kind of like a steer, the uterus and the flow, you know, like some George O'Keefe painting or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, there's a, but then it grays out between the legs. So again, there's no mention of the clitoris, of the sole organ that's there just for pleasure. And very, in terms of, it's not really a surprise then that 
only 30% of girls masturbate regularly and fewer than half ever have between the ages of 14 and 17, which is shocking, right? It is shocking. It's also consequential, and it comes up a lot on the show, and I get this uh, a lot in, in questions at the column and on the podcast, where young women who are entering into partnered intercourse will arrive at partnered intercourse never having masturbated, not yeah. knowing what it takes, not knowing what it feels like, not knowing yeah. what they need, what their own plateaus feel like, what the approach of an orgasm feels like, really arriving at partner sex, not experts about their own orgasms. But also, not knowing their own bodies. Not knowing, not their, own knowing bodies. their own bodies. And then they're really yeah. frustrated because they look at this perhaps equally inexperienced boy who is, on the other hand, an expert on his dick. He knows exactly yeah. what it needs, feels like, what his plateaus are like, what the approach of orgasm feels like. Mm -hmm. He is an expert. And they look at this boy and they go, okay, make me come. Right. And exactly. And so that's, then they go into, that was, I was going to say, they go into their partnered experience and we somehow expect them to know what they're doing or, or, or have some sense of their bodies or have some sense of egalitarianism. And they don't. And it's really interesting, you know, the, the, when I would talk to girls, I was always interested in, you know, kind of inversion language. So they would tell me that I would say, do you masturbate or, you know, something like that. And they would say, oh no, I have a boyfriend to do that. And I think, oh yeah, I'm sure that works really well. Um, <laughs> and but then I would say when we would talk about what they were doing, you know, as as givers, uh, they would say, oh, no, boys don't want you to do, give them a hand job because they can do that themselves. And I thought, so you need your boyfriend to do it, but he doesn't want you to do it because he can do it himself. Okay, we need to back up quickly. I've been a bad interviewer here. The book is you talked with at length 70 oh, yeah. girls <laughs> and young women about their experiences, about their sexualities, about their attitudes, about pornography, and mm -hmm. you talked with experts. And that's the that, that's the book. The book is exploring yeah. uh, female sexuality as experienced by young women today. Hence, yeah, and really looking at this idea of of who you know feels entitled to to engage in sex, who feels entitled to enjoy it, who's the primary beneficiary, and to a large extent, you know what it, what I felt coming out of it was that girls do feel entitled to engage in sexual behavior now, but they don't necessarily feel entitled to enjoy it, and that's what's need, what needs to change. That does need to change, and we've seen this before, where people will be having sex, young people will be having sex, particularly young women, young girls will be having sex, and it's unpleasurable. But they don't think yeah. that that's necessarily a problem because no one's ever explained to them or empowered them that it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, never, never told them that it's supposed to feel good for you too. And so that it doesn't feel good, it doesn't register with them as necessarily a problem. Right. And when you um, talk to kids about satisfaction, when you talk to college students, it's really interesting that uh, young women are more likely to measure their sexual satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, he was satisfied, he had an orgasm, so I'm satisfied. Uh. But, they, but young men measure their pleasure by, but their satisfaction by, I had an orgasm. Should we just shut down this whole opposite sex thing and just nobody should be straight anymore? That we should just declare I think this that would be a, the, yeah. a fatal disconnect? It is true that with, um, when girls have same-sex sex, they continue to have that concern with their partner's orgasm. <laughs> so they tend to be much more orgasmic when they're with um, other women. Well, we should all be concerned for our partner's orgasms. We should be saying that to, to yeah. boys. You should be concerned for her pleasure as well. But we need to get to a place where girls are educated about their own bodies, where their, their genitals, their vulvas, their vaginas aren't treated as an absence but as a presence. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's a systematic way that we still, you know, for all that our culture is saturated with sex, we 
have this just resounding silence about female bodies and female pleasures and pleasure when we talk to girls. And I, I get that pushback also from girls because I will sometimes speak at a college or directly answer an email I got or take a call on the show and it'll be a, a young woman uh, who's in her first or maybe her fourth or fifth uh, relationship, sexual relationship and can't come, can't come. And I will sometimes say, can you come when you masturbate? And there will be this silence because they don't masturbate or she hasn't masturbated. And my advice always in that situation is masturbate, go masturbate, learn what right. it takes to make yourself come. And then you can show him what to do, but he can't just guess. Ideally. Yeah. And it's girls also will say to me, I've had some pushback when I've done interviews on this book where female interviewers will say, well, you know, orgasm shouldn't be, isn't the end all and be all. And I'll say true. And women are six times more likely to say they enjoyed an encounter if they had an orgasm. True. And if you look back at all your partners and only 35% of them had ever had orgasms, wouldn't you think that was a little odd? Wouldn't you but, feel like yeah, a lousy leg? That's odd if, yeah, if women do that. You know, I mean, it's sort of, again, looking at this idea of who, you know, how do we, you know, I look at this, but I look at this as a mother, I look at this as a journalist, and I look at this as a feminist, um, as uh, a, a justice issue. So, you know, just like you look at um, who's doing the dishes and who's cleaning the house as a, as a justice issue. These are issues, you know, the personal is political and what could be more personal or more political than our sexual relationships. So you're another person out there like me telling people we should speak with our children about sex and about pleasure. It's easier to speak about speaking with our children about those things than to actually speak to our own children about those things. I found it it's difficult to speak true. to my own son about these issues, even though I was pushing other people, other parents yeah. to speak to their children. Do you have the same problem? Kind of, kind of not. I, I do love when you talk about how you talk to your son. I've learned a lot from it, to tell you the truth. Oh, um, nice my said. daughter is, is I, I did notice about two years into writing the book, working on the book, I hadn't actually um, told my daughter what the book was about. <laughs> so, because she doesn't care what I do. I might as well be, you know, I don't know, a ditch digger or something for all she cares. So long as the fridge is full, my son doesn't care what I do. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but, but uh, so I realized I had to walk my talk with her more. And, and I do find ways to integrate it. But I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know that it always has to be the direct parent. Like, I've been that person for friends' kids or for my nieces. Mm. And there have been times when I've, you know, been sitting across the table and said exactly what we've been talking about. I said, okay, so you're thinking, you're 16 years old. You're thinking about having intercourse with your male partner. Have you masturbated? Have you had an orgasm on your own? Have you had one with him? Can you talk to him about what feels good to you? Can you talk to him about your limits? If not, exactly what are you trying to get out of moving towards sexual intercourse? What is the purpose of this for you and for him? And um, while I'm saying that, there's a part of me that wants to sink into the floor. And I'm sure there's a part of her that wants to sink into the floor as she used it. Could those be. Things. I mean, they tend to look at me with very large eyes. But I will tell you that when I've done that with girls in my life, including the girls that I interview, some of them, the relationship becomes so much richer. And, you know, like with one of my nieces that I, that I talked to a lot when she was young, she's in her mid-20s now. We talk all the time about everything mm. because we establish this basis of trust and non-judgment. And, you know, she really feels like I'm on her team. And there's other countries where they do do a much better job of this. And I talk about that a lot in the book. I talk about Holland and how the biggest difference, the, the girls in Holland 
their sexual experience is so much more what we would wish our girls to have. You know, it's pleasurable, it's ethical, it's responsible, it's, you know, uh, they can talk to their partners, they can express needs, desires, and limits, all these things that we want, autonomy, agency. And the biggest difference is that American parents will talk to their kids about risk and danger, but they don't balance that conversation by talking about joy and pleasure, and the Dutch do, and that is one of the biggest differences in our cultures. What do you think we're likelier to get first? Dutch-style socialized medicine, Dutch-style public transportation, or Dutch-style sex education? Well, we have Dutch-style legalized marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are on our way to to becoming Holland. I would like to see us become Holland faster. Before we let you go, quickly, uh, you recently had a large op-ed in the New York Times about how porn has become sex education in the Uh United States. I'm going to like just lob this question slow and over the plate, and you're going to knock it out. Is that a problem? <laughs> I'm guessing it is. No, no it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's typically what people write their op-eds for the New York Times about, things that are not a problem for many, many words. I generally do, yeah. Yeah, you know, kids are um, consulting. What research shows is that kids are consulting porn like it's an instruction manual. And um, even though they kind of know that it's about as realistic as pro wrestling, right? But it's affecting their sense of what their girls, what their body should look like, what orgasm should sound like and feel like and look like, what sex ought to be, what they ought to be engaging in. So many girls, Dan, would say, ask me, you know, my boyfriend wants to know why I don't make the noises that the women make in porn. And I started, you know, I started getting so annoyed, not with the girls, annoyed with the girls, but annoyed with the question. I started going, look, it's a movie. You know, it's a movie. They need a soundtrack. It's Kabuki sounds. If nobody made noises, it would be a silent movie. <laughs> They're acting. They're performing. <laughs> and that's why porn needs to be a part of our, you know, we have lousy sex ed, and so porn is yeah. filling the gap. But if we had decent sex ed, porn would be something covered in our sex ed. How to view it critically. Absolutely. One thing I think that we don't talk about when we talk about porn, we, also, we often talk about the crushing expectations that girls feel. You know, the the expectations that mm-hmm. porn has created in boys around what girls will do. The flip side of that for many boys is this, these crushing expectations that these are things they should want to do. Yes, and I that, think that's true. And I think that can be really sad for boys. That's really awful. It is. If it, they feel that they, yeah. Yeah, like not every boy wants to do everything that he sees in porn, but a lot of boys get it in their heads that there's something wrong with them if they don't want to do everything they see in porn. Just as a lot of girls yeah. feel that unfairly or, or you know, that it is legit straight up unfairly. Or a lot of girls feel pressure to do yeah. everything they see in porn. Boys feel this weird pressure to want to do everything they see in porn. And just it's not working as sex education for anybody. But so long as we yeah. have no sex ed, or abstinence-only sex ed, or only sex-dread sex ed, which is panic, panic, and you're going to die. And mm-hmm. if you must do this, you, you wear a condom, but God help you, which is not sex yeah. ed either. People are going to turn to porn. And those are pretty much the three options that we've got right now. And I did end the book in a, in a class where somebody was, you know, where a teacher was really doing it right. And she was in a, and it's a co-ed class, which I liked, and really working with boys and girls to break down some of these myths to, you know, think about decision-making, to think about how they treat their partners, to talk about ethics in sexual behavior. And it was amazing. And there was like, there was one moment where this boy, they were talking about, I don't know, the, you know, the baseball metaphor stuff. And he just went, wait a second, I never thought about this, but in baseball, there's winners and losers. So <laughs> who's supposed to be the loser here? And I just thought, you know, bingo. That right. sentence, just that sentence is going to take that boy down a totally different path 
in his sexual relations. So before we let you go, would you be up for taking a call with us? Sex advice, really. Sure. Anybody, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I'll try. Hi, Dan. This is a 17-year-old girl in California, and I have a question. I have been masturbating for a couple of years now, and I have never, I've experienced pleasure from masturbation, but I've never experienced an orgasm. And maybe, maybe it's because I think of an orgasm in this way, like the kind of way you'd see it in a porn scene kind of thing. And that's why, what I think an orgasm should be. Maybe it's, I haven't had that kind of orgasm or what I would imagine it to be. I've gotten to this point where I couldn't exactly continue because it was too, too much. Like it was, it was too much of that feeling. It's so hard to explain, but I don't, I think I'm doing something wrong or maybe I feel bad about it because I've been raised Catholic and there's a lot of shame regarding that. Okay, Peggy, you get to be her aunt. What would you tell her? First of all, yay for masturbating. <laughs> That's where I'd start. You know, like I said, only 30% of young women masturbate regularly and fewer than half have ever masturbated. So good on you for that. Um, porn is a movie. <laughs> the women in porn are performing. That is not what female orgasm sounds like, needs to sound like, has to sound like, might sound like, it might sound like, but orgasm is an individual thing. It's about your body. It's about your responses. There is not a right and a wrong way to do it. So she could be orgasmic and not realize it because her orgasms don't resemble the orgasms that she's seen performed. In- she could be. Or maybe she isn't yet. Maybe she is still learning and she's experimenting with her body. And that is wonderful, too. She'll get there. You know, maybe get a vibrator. I don't know. You know, touch yourself, know yourself, love yourself. It will happen. Don't put pressure on yourself. Don't let porn be your idea or your ideal of what sex looks like. Unless you, you know, it's sort of like saying my marriage doesn't look like real housewives. Thank God for that. Who wants their marriage to look like Real Housewives? Exactly. Um, I wanted to throw something out there about the male experience or the penis having experience Mm -hmm. with masturbation that a lot of people don't seem to be conscious of and it rarely seems to be acknowledged. And when you bring this up with guys, they're like, oh, yeah, right. They remember this. But often boys masturbate for a long time, months or even a year or two before they ejaculate for the first time. A lot of guys, when you talk to them about the first time they ejaculated, they were surprised because they had been stimulating themselves and jacking off or, you know, taking a long time in the shower and it just felt good, but that never happened. And then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. one day they maybe pushed past the point where it felt too intense or they just tiptoed up to the point where it was, they went over the falls and suddenly they're ejaculating. And you talk to boys who were raised Catholic, like this caller, maybe raised in ignorance of even male sexuality. Who ejaculated the first time and thought they were dying, thought their kidneys were coming out of their dick or something because they weren't wow, expecting that's really this. Interesting. So it's. Uh, the other thing I would say is I, uh, you know, that, that it would be great for this young woman to um, get a picture, not a porn picture, but like an anatomical picture so that she knows where her clitoris is, that she knows, you know, what, exactly what's going on in there. Even take a mirror, take a look, see what, you know, see what you got. And to know that there's a whole bunch of your clitoris you can't see with a mirror or just by looking. Yes, the part that's inside, but you can at least see the, you know, the little bitty part that's outside. 
And some of the messages that women get, young women get about masturbation is that it's all potentially for a woman. And for many women, it is successfully external to stimulate the part of the clit mm-hmm. that you can see, the glands. Mm-hmm. And for most women, that's going to get them there. Some women require more focused, intense internal clitoral stimulation in order to climax too. Right. And only through exploration caller will you find out if you're one of those women. Absolutely. Any other advice for her? I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad she called. Yeah, I am too. And I and I really felt like that that call encapsulated so much of what we've been talking about in terms of the silence around female pleasure, the the ways that um, porn exacerbates that anxiety, and the importance of really getting to know your body and your responses yourself um, before you can really share that with a partner. Peggy Ornstein, author of the new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Thanks for jumping on the phone. It was so great talking with you. I hope you'll come back on. Oh, thanks. I would love to. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female, straight, living in the Northeast. Um, So I've been seeing this guy for about a month and a half, almost two months. He's almost 32, so he's about four or five years older than me. Um, we've been getting along great first time in a while that I've been dating someone. Uh, he's more recently been in a relationship, but it's still been a significant amount of time where it doesn't, it's not a rebound or anything. Dates have been really wonderful. We definitely have great chemistry, even when we're like kissing and all that. It's awesome, but we still haven't slept together. and. It's kind of frustrating. I definitely have a sex drive, but I'm not one to necessarily initiate it, at least not the first time, and it doesn't seem like he is either. He's had more than ample opportunities to do so, Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any advice for two maybe more shy people in a relationship that maybe want to sleep together, but are having trouble initiating it. Um, Like what would that conversation sound like if it's a conversation or maybe I just need to hear you say, go for it. Go for it. I kind of actually just want to leave it there and just say, go for it. But I'll expound briefly upon your dilemma. What's the problem? Why can't you just say to him, in a sexy way, not a recriminating way. It's only been eight weeks. Maybe he wanted to wait to let the sexual tension build as it is building in you. You could just say to him, I really want you to fuck me. And then see what he says. Use your words. Like go for it. Three important words. <laughs> Use your words. Go for it. Use your words and go for it with your words. And say to him, I would like to fuck you. And then see what he says. If he says, I would not like to fuck you, well, you have your answer. You know what you need to know. Get the fuck out of there. Maybe there's a reason he's waiting. Maybe there's something that he feels he needs to disclose to you before he fucks you. Maybe he has a sexually transmitted infection that he feels he must disclose before you guys become intimate and he is waiting for the right moment and that moment might come if you say, I would really like to fuck you or really like to be fucked by you. Maybe he has a parasitic twin and he's embarrassed to take his shirt off. Maybe... He's married. Maybe he's polyamorous and there's a wife or a girlfriend that you don't know about that he feels you have a right to know about before you become intimate. There's all sorts of things that could be going on for him. Or maybe he's just the kind of guy who likes it when the woman makes that first move or initiates sex for the first time. 
You'll find out once you go for it with your words. Hi. So this is a bit complicated, but um, about a year ago, I met a polyamorous guy on Tinder. And since he has a primary and I'm not interested in anything serious with polyamory, um, we discussed potentially either being friends or friends with benefits, just depending on how the chemistry was. There were a few close calls a few times he wanted me to come over or we went on one date and he wanted to follow up with the second date. It just never happened due to things going on in his life versus mine. So over the months, we just became distant friends and I actually developed a friendship with his primary girlfriend, um, much more of a friendship than I had with him. But we continued talking occasionally and talked about potentially hooking up two days before it was supposed to happen. His girlfriend discloses to me that she has, that he has HIV. So he's positive. She's negative. She's on prep. It was 48 hours before it was supposed to happen. So I didn't even have the option of getting on prep if I wanted to go that route. He never disclosed it to me. And she said that she had never even mentioned anything because he and I had been platonic up until then. But there were instances before that that he wanted me to come over to his place and it was probably not going to be platonic and he wanted to see me again after first date. I think that he had full intention on having sex with me and never in the whole year that I knew him never disclosed his status to me once. Um, He even, once she told me about him being positive, he never even said anything to me about it. He wrote it off saying that, oh, I'm just not at a point for casual sex right now. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm 99% sure he is extremely promiscuous um, from what she said, from what he said. And if you just even look on his Facebook recently at a friend, you will always see a slew of women. Uh, This is in the whole year that I've known him. I don't think he discloses it to other people. I think that she discloses for him when she can. And I think that that's just my observation. That's something that she has told herself that they're very open and honest about it. I think she's open and honest. I don't think he's open and honest at all. He still has never even mentioned his status to me. So question one, how do I cut him out of my life? Yeah, it's still keep in good standing with the girlfriend because I actually really like her as a friend. And two, is it my responsibility to disclose his status to other women? Because I I do have a feeling that he is spreading this or potentially putting others at risk. How do you cut this guy out of your life without losing your connection with his girlfriend? I don't know. It's difficult to be friends with somebody whose partner you loathe or despise or want to cut out of your life. If you're friends with someone, their partner is that one removed from your life and is going to tangentially be involved in your life. And if it's absolutely imperative to have this guy the fuck out of your life, you're probably going to have to get his girlfriend the fuck out of your life. His girlfriend who, I don't want to say outed him as HIV positive to you, but disclosed his status to you in advance of a planned three-way. But maybe that's how he rolls. Maybe disclosure is something that he has outsourced to her in those circumstances. The question here, though, is should you run through Facebook outing him to other people that he's friends with as HIV positive? And the answer to that is no. No, you shouldn't. You don't actually know for sure what would have happened if you two had 
met up for sex. He never had sex with you. He had intimated that he might want to have sex with you. He had invited you over, invited himself over at times that realistically and logically sex could have happened. And you can't rule out him disclosing in the moment. You never fucked the dude. It's not like he fucked you without disclosing. He made it clear to you he would like to fuck you and never got around to fucking you or got around to having a three-way with you and never disclosed to you in advance of these two ways or three ways that never happened. Even if they were imminent, you can't rule out that the night he invited himself over and he wanted to fuck you, he wouldn't come over and say, look, before we fuck, I need to tell you I'm positive. I'm adhering to my drug regimen. I have zero viral load. My partner is on prep. We will use condoms. It is safe sex, but I'm positive. You can't rule out the fact that he might've said all that to you. He might be a scumbag. He might have never told you this. He might've fucked you without a condom. But because he might be a scumbag doesn't mean you should turn around and actually be a scumbag because it's a scumbaggy thing not to disclose. People should disclose. I'm pro-disclosure. It is a scumbaggy thing to out someone about their HIV status to others. And you don't have a license to be a scumbag because this guy might be a scumbag. Talk to his girlfriend if you need an assurance. Talk to his girlfriend about how you feel if you don't want to talk to him or talk to him about how you feel that you were about to have sex and you feel you had a right to know that he was positive and it should have come from him and it should have come sooner and see what he says. Maybe what he says is I don't tell anybody. I am a scumbag. I don't disclose. Or maybe what he says is I disclose when it's about to happen. I was still getting to know you. We were flirting. We weren't fucking. And at the flirting stage, I don't disclose. Because I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be dismissed because the stigma is so great. Look at what we're doing right now. The stigma is so great that I wait until someone gets to know me better before disclosing. Or I wait until the first time we're actually going to have sex and then say we, there's something we need to talk about. I'm afraid that in this circumstance he gets the benefit of this doubt, however small. Because the fact that somebody might be an asshole doesn't give you license to actually be an asshole. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, I'm a 22-year-old girl uh, from Chicago, but I'm studying in the UK. And um, I am just, I'm kind of going back and forth on something. So when I was home for winter break, uh, I kind of started seeing this guy in Chicago. You know, things went really well. We've been talking. I feel like we've been getting along really well. Like, we've kind of discussed, you know, being together when I'm back. We've been texting, like, for the past, like, I don't know, nine weeks, ten weeks. And I was, like, you know, thinking, okay, this is somebody I trust. This is somebody I care about. I'm going to tell him some information um, about my mom because my mom's having some health issues and I'm pretty nervous. Uh, We're waiting for some test results on Monday. And I told him this on Friday. He's at this festival thing right now and already had told me like he was going to be busy, but he's, he's not followed up with me at all. He's just not responded. And he's been online this whole weekend and it's, it's really hurt my feelings. It's like, I told you this information, like, my family's really stressed out. I'm really stressed out. And it doesn't seem like he cares. And I don't know if I should tell him that it's hurt my feelings or if I should just like let it go. Let's review the facts. You fucked the guy once. He had an awesome one night stand in Chicago, I believe. And then you've been texting casually 
back and forth for nine or ten weeks. And then you laid something heavy on him and he didn't come through with the emotional support that you feel he owes you at this stage of your what are we going to call it? Is it a relationship? What is it? It seems early in a relationship, particularly the relationship such as it is at this stage, to lay something heavy on him as a challenge, as a marker, as a test. It seems soon. It seems a little early in the relationship to be turning to him for emotional support. You don't really know this guy and he doesn't really know you. And I'm not excusing his behavior. If I were him and I were flirting with somebody and they said, uh, left field, I know, but heavy thing, I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. But it's also possible that he would react to that like, huh, odd that she should share this with me considering what our relationship is about at this stage. We're flirting. We fucked once. We're getting to know each other. I'm not part of her emotional support system. And perhaps you spooked him. Perhaps he feels that it's getting a little too heavy, a little too fast, or you're expecting more from him at this stage than is rational or that you have a right to expect from him at this stage. And perhaps now he's worried what else will be expected of him perhaps sooner than you have a right to expect it. I'm not excusing his behavior. If I was on the receiving end of a text like that, I would respond to it. There's also the chance that he missed that text or it scrolled away. Perhaps he has tons of friends at this festival and that text came through and he got a million other texts that day and your text just got shoved down and he spaced it. Also possible. Send him another text. If I was going to strategize with you about that next text, it wouldn't be a scolding text about his failure to respond to your previous heavy text. It would be a return to form, chit-chatty. And then if he starts chatting with you again at some point in the future to demonstrate your high emotional IQ, at some point in the future, just say, you never responded to the text about my mother's health condition. Don't know why. I hope that wasn't too heavy to lay on you. I hope that wasn't too soon. It was just a fact about what's going on with me right now. And then see how he responds to that. Hey, Dan. This is in response to the guy who was complaining about the price of condoms in the last episode. Uh, first, you can get quite a bit of condoms for a substantial discount places like Amazon or other places online and have them delivered in all sorts of fun little assortment packs and such. At the same time, I think it came down a little bit hard on him. Uh, yeah, you're right. The, there's all the assaults on women's reproductive reproductive health. At the same time, I want to do everything I can to encourage guys to take responsibility for their own part in it. And removing every possible excuse for them not to use a condom, it seems like a good idea to me. Hi, Dan. I'm a customer service rep calling in regarding some advice you gave in episode 493 to the gentleman who was secretly perving the Verizon representative. Normally, I think your advice is spot on, but I really have to disagree with you here. What you may not be aware of is that most companies like this, particularly ones as big as Verizon, they're going to be using call recording and monitoring software. So this could include callers that are on hold, and the rep may have even heard what was going on in real time while they were looking for that information. Either way, that's a really good way to end up with a big note on your account that says this guy is a creeper. And as someone who has been the victim of both secret and not so secret phone perving, please, please do not do this. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the phone calls and the secret perving. 
I work at a on a um, crisis and suicide hotline, and we know a lot of times we you know don't say anything, but uh, you kind of get this weird feeling when someone is talking to you uh, for sexual gratification, even if what they're talking about is something that sounds completely completely normal. So you know, not to mention the fact that they are taking up phone lines from people who might be actually suicidal or in crisis. So I'm happy to, you know, be part of people's sex lives consensually, but um, it does make me feel icky when I'm at work trying to help people and uh, people are calling and not as stealthy as they think. There are phone lines that you can call to talk sexually. Uh, I don't know what the going rate these days is, but maybe $2 a minute. So please try those. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to last episode talking about secret perving. Just something to consider. You have a really sexy voice and you talk about sex all the time. So uh, you might have gotten secret perved on in the past. Just putting it out there. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Pump, my amateur porn film festival, is playing in Montreal this weekend and coming to Columbus, Providence, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Washington, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and more cities. Go to humpfilmfest.com for a full list and tickets and info about submitting your films to Hump 2016. You could be a part of Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Peggy Orenstein on Twitter at Peggy Orenstein. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks, guys.